This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Troops from Mexico's National Guard patrolling the streets of Tijuana today after an outburst of violence that was seen up and down Baja, California. Drug cartel gunmen installed curfews, burned businesses and cars, and essentially closed off the region to government authorities for a number of days. What's behind the attacks? We'll go in-depth. The next generation of coronavirus vaccines hitting the market with the United Kingdom, the first country to approve Moderna's new COVID vaccine, which promises to build immunity against the original strain plus the Omicron variants. But is a new crop of vaccines really necessary? And did you know that dogs can be infected with the monkeypox virus? Apparently they can. It's happened in France, and we'll bring you the details. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. In the years since, Afghanistan has largely crumbled as a functioning country. We'll take a look back on what's been a tragic year. Latest legal entanglements in the Trump world. Former New York City mayor, close confidant to the former president, Rudy Giuliani, has been informed he's now the target of a criminal investigation in Georgia into the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. And while it may seem backwards, new research shows that uh, droughts stricken California could be vulnerable against mega floods. So we will talk about that at the end of the show. We start, though, in Tijuana. Wendy Fry covers Baja for the San Diego Union Tribune. Wendy, thanks for being with us. So what exactly is going on there? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, This morning, we are starting to see a return to normalcy, basically. The traffic is returning to its normal levels and sort of the flow of citizens, um, you know, cautiously going back to their regular routines. Uh, Still a lot of National Guard and Army elements patrolling the streets of both Tijuana and across the state of Baja, California, uh, especially sort of in those outer, more rural areas. And yeah, that's what is going on today. The officials are sort of trying to urge you know, tourists and citizens that things are going to be calm here forward. And I think the residents are cautiously trying to believe that. But it was what, Friday into Saturday that that the cartels or a cartel had at least uh, the streets of Tijuana pretty much closed down. Yes. uh, Friday night, uh, some messages started circulating on social media, basically threatening people that they needed to go home now or risk being attacked. And so the residents really heeded that warning and every, I mean, the whole city basically turned into a ghost town. Uh, Around midday Saturday, people started, taxis, um, you know, started going back to work for maybe 12, 14 hours there. The taxis were completely shut down. Nobody was taking anybody anywhere. So there were stranded workers in different areas of, you know, places where they work overnight in the maquiladoras or in the, you know, tourist zones where the bars are. There were workers just kind of stranded at different places of the city because the Tijuana, the taxi services had stopped or the public transportation had stopped. Um, and then today, you know, it was, oh, oh, then Saturday night and into Sunday, there was sort of another uptick of vehicles being burned. Um, so it's up to about 30, more than 30 different locations where buses were stuck, set on fire um, early this morning. Buses that take workers to the Maquiladoras were set on fire. Well, Wendy, Wendy, let me ask you, though, because I'm sure yeah. people who are not in that area are probably scratching their heads thinking, sure. what exactly do the cartels want? What do they want? What did they want? 
Uh, so, you know, the underlying message with this sort of thing, which we've seen big public displays, displays of violence before, two parts. One is, if we can't do business, nobody's doing business. We're going to shut it down, right? And then the other part of it is, look at how far and wide our reach is and what a coordinated and simultaneous attack. So on Friday night, you know, you had these two dozen different locations across the entire state of Baja California, simultaneously roads shut down, vehicles set on fire, people taken off of public transportation. So the message is we're everywhere. Even if you don't see us all the time, we're, we've got this whole state covered and we can do what we want and shut it down when we want to. So they're flexing basically because the yeah. police or the state will say, you know, things have changed over the years. And this is the cartel saying, uh, no, they haven't. Right. And that's something that the residents know, you know, it's always sort of just in the background that that, you know, the cartel is there. You don't usually see them. They certainly don't show up in the tourist areas. Right. Um, but the residents know somewhere in the background, they are there. They are. And if they don't get their way, if somebody's arrested that they want back, they do have the power. They are out, able to outgun basically the security forces on hand. Wendy Fry covers Baja for the San Diego Union Tribune. Wendy, thanks. Well, just in time uh, for the holidays, there's a new crop of COVID vaccines, but do we need them? This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come a little later in the show, uh, marking a year since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, Rudy Giuliani becoming the latest Trump world figure, finding himself the subject of a criminal probe. Right now, though, the United Kingdom becoming the first to approve a new and improved version of Moderna's COVID vaccine. The updated formula promises to build up our immunity against the original coronavirus uh, and the Omicron variant strains. Dr. Robert Wachter is the chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So I guess one of the questions that, that has come up repeatedly, actually, in the past few months is... Do we really need these sort of tweaked versions of the vaccine if the original one we're constantly being told is still doing a really good job keeping people from getting very sick and dying? Yeah, the answer is we that that there can be a better vaccine. The original one is doing a good job against severe infection, but not doing a very good job against preventing all infections. And even if you got the original one, if you got it, you know, your last booster six or eight months ago, its efficacy against severe infection is waned. So uh, your next booster should probably be one that is partly targeted against the actual virus that that is at play now, which is the Omicron BA5. So I suspect this will be uh, it won't be life changing, but it will be better and last longer than what we currently have. And what is the formula of this Moderna vaccine? Because they were trying to decide for a long time, you know, which strains to put in it. Did they go for the latest and greatest or, or is this yeah. like original Omicron? No, it's it's the new and improved Omicron. It's it's against the BA5, which is the the virus that we have now. And the good and happy news, and I don't say that much about uh, COVID, is that the BA5, which has been the variant that's been the variant du jour for a couple of months, doesn't seem to be uh, in the process of being replaced by anything else, at least for a while. And so there was a worry when they decided to go with BA5 a couple of months ago, like, okay, great, but if the vaccine rolls out September, October, 
and there's BA7 or 8 or 10 or 12, then maybe it won't work as well. It looks like BA5 is going to be the variant that will be in play when the new vaccine rolls out. So we don't know for sure yet, but the assumption is that it will work better in terms of preventing severe infections and in terms of preventing all infections. And so when you have a chance to get it, I would get it. I presume that Pfizer is working on its own version of this updated vaccine. But uh, if that ends up coming out much later on, for whatever reason, people who were uh, originally vaccinated and originally boosted with Pfizer, it's okay for them to get the Moderna one when it's available? Yeah. I mean, the evidence seems pretty clear that that mixing and matching, as, as, as people call it, is certainly no worse than sticking with the same one and might actually be a smidgen better. Uh, I, for example, got my first three shots were Pfizer and I decided to take a fourth shot with Moderna. Um, there's some evidence that it gives you a little bit broader immune response. So I'd say when this thing comes out, probably doesn't matter which one you get. And if you've gotten the other one, it's perfectly fine to switch over to the, 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 the other uh, the other vaccine. You think people who skipped their third or fourth uh, original dose will actually get this one because it's different? Is that the sales pitch? I mean, the sales pitch is there's just no question that it will work better and markedly decrease your chances of getting really sick, going to the hospital and dying I, and, and, and do it quite safely. So I would have thought that would be enough of a sales pitch. It turns out for some people it has been, for some people it hasn't. Um, there, you know, there probably are some people who have been waiting for this, you know, got maybe their first booster, didn't get the second one because they were waiting for a new and improved booster. And so hopefully some of them will get it. I expect that for a lot of people, they feel like, you know, COVID's over. And unfortunately they're wrong there. You know, there's still 100,000 reported cases a day in the United States because of home testing not being counted. That probably translates to 500,000, 600,000 cases a day. So there's a huge amount of COVID around. If you're vaccinated and boosted, you're almost certainly not going to die of it. But I still don't want to get it. You're, you know, you're laid up for several days or a week or 10 days. And there is this possibility of long COVID, which makes a lot of people feel crummy for an awful long time. So my sales pitch is it's safe, effective, and there's no good reason not to get it when it comes out. And, and when it does come out, are we now at the point of until something maybe even better comes along down the road, uh, yearly vaccines as opposed to, you know, people who were diligent about getting vaccinated in the past year, year and a half, you know, they've gotten several vaccines in a 12-month period. Are we down to now one a year? I don't think we have any idea. Uh, You know, the hope is that this new booster will last longer. A part of the reason the last booster or two didn't last as long was that new variants came out that partly were able to sidestep uh, the, 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 the vaccine and the boosters. So the length of, uh, you know, the timing of this booster will de- be determined in part by how well it works. We don't quite know yet, but also how long it works will partly depend on whether this variant stays the variant for the next year. I think if you were a betting person, you'd say there's probably going to be a new variant because uh, that's we've seen four or five of them in the last six or eight months. And so I would not bet on uh, this being one and done for a year. One and done also feels right in part because we're used to the flu vaccine you take once a year, but that's partly because flu is a seasonal virus. You don't have to worry about it over the summer. And what we've learned about COVID is it's not a seasonal virus. It, it will come out in the spring. It will come out in the summer. And so if I had a bet, I'd say you probably could look at another one six months later. Uh, one quick question, then we're going to run out of time. Uh, are there any other diseases where 
someone has to be vaccinated several times a year for perpetuity? Not that I can think of, and it may turn out to be that you don't need to get vaccinated uh, every six months in perpetuity, because by the time we get to whatever the final stage is, everybody's gotten it enough times and everybody keeps getting it, that the disease is milder and we have better therapies. So if you do get it, uh, you know, there's a guarantee that you can take something easy and safe that will prevent anything severe happening. But yeah, there's not really a model for this, but everything about this has been funky. Dr. Robert Walker chairs the Department of Medicine, UC San Francisco. Now, if you find yourself infected with monkeypox, yeah, we've moved on from coronavirus, make sure not to get too close to your pets. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Later on today, it seems totally counterintuitive, but new research shows that drought-stricken California where we are desperate for rain is highly vulnerable to a mega flood that could deluge us with days of rain and wipe out billions of dollars worth of infrastructure. Right now, though, if you get monkeypox, uh, stay away from the dog. A couple from France learned this. Uh, they got monkeypox, continued um, to be around uh, Fido. And when the uh, pustules started to appear on the dog, well, he was tested and um, he's got the virus. Dr. Michael Oglesby, director of the Ohio State Infectious Diseases Institute, is with us. Doctor, thanks for being here. So did we think this could happen from from humans to, to the pets in the house? We certainly thought it was possible. Um, you know, we, we know that many of the viruses in this group can infect multiple species uh, based on the fact that you know, we have such a growing number of human cases and it's so rare to see a dog infected suggests that the transmission is not highly efficient from people to dogs, but it's clearly possible. Does it make it more difficult, though, to get rid of this virus? Uh, I don't mean from a person, but just in, in the country, once it finds a safe harbor in animals, especially home pets? Sure. I, I mean, the short answer is yes. The, the more species that can support the infection and can shed the virus, uh, the greater the challenge. And it's it's actually really quite astounding uh, the rate at which cases and people are rising. So uh, we're likely to see more of this in the future. How do we know about how this happened and what should people do? Let's say you get monkeypox, um, take the dog or the cat to the friends or, or try and isolate from it? Or was this like a scenario of, you know, it was sleeping in the bed and we know maybe it can transmit via sheets or laundry or, or you know, all that stuff. And there's like a prolonged contact that way. Yes, prolonged contact. And, you know, I I would use the same guidelines uh, between an infected person and their dog as an infected person would take with other people. Um, you know, isolate if possible, as long as you have symptoms. So if your dog could be, uh, if somebody could take care of your dog, great. If, if that's not possible, you know, just use some very common sense moves. Uh, having your dog sleep in your bed, not a good idea. Um, you know, you, you would certainly cover any rash or pustules uh, with either bandages or clothing, wash your hands before uh, preparing food or, or water for your dog. Um, so, you know, anything that would diminish prolonged contact. I'm curious because monkeypox is in the smallpox family. Did dogs get smallpox when it was circulated? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, not that I know of. 
what is your outlook for what we're going to be facing over the next few months? Because you were talking about how the case rate is exploding out there. There's a, there's these plans from the federal government. You know, we can increase the the numbers of vaccines we have by lowering the dose and administering them a, a different way. Um, your confidence level that this is not going to be a super prolonged event? I, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a super prolonged event. We we actually know how to effectively uh, vaccinate, and you know, part of the problem in people relates to the fact that we stopped. Uh, routine vaccination for smallpox in the early 1970s. And so uh, it turns out that with the, the vaccine for smallpox, which was actually vaccinia virus or cowpox, was very protective against that agent and, and actually is protective against monkeypox. But when we stopped vaccinating for smallpox, uh, we essentially created a large susceptible population. So I think it's just really a, a matter of you know, how long does it take to uh, make that pivot? Dr. Michael Oglesby, director of the Ohio State Infectious Diseases Institute. It was a year ago today that uh, Kabul in Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, and the wounds for both Afghanistan and the U.S. military, they remain very fresh. When we come back uh, within depth, we're going to talk about that. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A year ago today, Taliban rolled into Kabul, faced little resistance. In the days that would follow, they'd cement their grip on Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. would uh, withdraw, and that would leave over a dozen service members dead and plenty of people left behind. In the year that has followed, any progress made in Afghanistan during the 20-year American war there was reversed as women's rights evaporated overnight. Millions of Afghans have been dealing with food insecurity, and much of the government has, well, ceased to exist. Meanwhile, there are still a lot of bitter feelings about the chaotic and deadly withdrawal of U.S. forces. Douglas Olivant is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He's a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel who spent a year in Afghanistan as a counterinsurgency advisor to the U.S. military commander. Thanks for being with us. Uh, so at the time of our withdrawal, uh, it was widely criticized by many uh, for, as I said at the, at the top, and as Mike said, the chaotic nature of the U.S. withdrawal from that country. There were promises, as you know, from the Taliban that things would be different, that they would respect women's rights to some degree. But they went back on pretty much all of that, didn't they? Well, I think what the, the first lesson we need to learn from this is the Taliban is still the Taliban. Leopards don't change their spots. And whether we're talking about the rights of women or whether we're talking about their willingness to provide aid to al-Qaeda, um, you know, as we saw with the, the death of Zawahiri in downtown Kabul, the ritziest neighborhood there, uh, they're still the same Taliban. Who do you think about? Right now, a year later, the the women and girls who were promised things that um, have not come to pass, that the rights have been taken away from them, the people who works with us that still need to get out, that we haven't been able to get out, who are probably living in fear every single day. Look, there are so many tragic stories going on here. Uh, you know, we, We've talked briefly about the Taliban still doing what they're doing. 
But there's also an ISIS problem in Afghanistan, and perversely, the Taliban are fighting against ISIS there. So there are things worse than the Taliban, uh, and ISIS is going in Afghanistan after the Shia Hazara. Uh, you know, unlike the Arab countries, the Shia in Afghanistan are in their own ethnic group. They look very, very different than the rest of the Afghans, just you know, genetically. Um, so they're being persecuted, hunted down, they're, they're moss-bombed by ISIS. That's a real problem. The economy is collapsing. There were two things that were holding the Afghan economy together, and that was all the foreign aid money, and that has obviously disappeared, um, and the opium. And perversely, one of the things the Taliban is doing, that they always did, is suppressing the opium crop. They are... Um, really harsh on opium growing and they are out there burning the fields which is unfortunately the only other real major source of cash in afghanistan so they're in a bad place unless you're just a subsistence farmer i was listening to i think it was the bbc this morning and they had two guests on uh one was a gentleman who lives in the u.s for many years, originally from Afghanistan, who was saying that he thought his two daughters, one was, I think, five and the other was three, I think, he didn't think they will ever in their lifetimes be able to return to Afghanistan. But the other guest, who does a lot of reporting or did do a lot of reporting from Afghanistan, took the position that, well, you know, there's a Taliban, but there's so many other groups vying for power in that country that in a few short years, uh, the Taliban, which is not very good at actually running a government, is going to collapse of its own weight. And so there is some hope. Which of those two guests do you find yourself siding with? I think it depends on the day. I can definitely see <laughs> both sides of this argument. You know, as you said at the top of the show, there doesn't appear to be much left in Afghanistan right now of our 20-year presence there. But I was talking with uh, someone who also spent a lot of time there the other day um, and was expressing this same opinion that, you know, nothing, nothing we built is, is remains. And he said, well, yes, that's true. He's like, but every Afghan, no matter how deep in the hills, knows that if they can get a cell phone and if they can go someplace and get an internet signal, they can fact check their Malik, the, the tribal leader in their village, and they can fact check their imam. It's like that is not going back in the box and that has forever transformed that society. So that's the bright side that I would show is the 20 years of the US presence there did show all Afghans that there's a much bigger world out there. And I'm not sure the Taliban can tamp that down in 2022 the way that they were able to do in the 90s, you know, pre-iPhone, pre-everything. Douglas Olivant, Senior Fellow, the New America Foundation. Coming up, at least half a dozen USC fraternities were subjected to much stricter standards for their conduct and morals. But instead of complying, they simply cut ties with the university. And that is a growing trend all across the country. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Heading into the new school year, USC laid down the law for its fraternities and sororities. After years of scandals around hazing, excessive drinking, sexual assaults, the USC's administration had seen enough. It introduced a slate of reforms, including requiring frats to have security on hand for parties, scanners to check IDs, 
and the banning of beer kegs. Well, the fraternities were not happy. Instead of complying, at least half a dozen uh, frats at USC have decided to disassociate themselves with the university. Sarah Brown's with us, reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, where she covers issues like Title IX and the handling of sexual assault allegations on campuses. And also Jim Piazza, his son Tim, died as a result of hazing at a fraternity at Penn State in 2017. Thanks to you both for being here. Sarah, let's start with you. Is this something that's growing, this kind of a trend? Uh, the universities are saying, look, here are the rules after all that we've seen. And the frats are saying, okay, um, well, how about this? We are now some sort of outside club. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, you know, fraternities have been an issue for years and colleges have taken various steps to try to crack down on misconduct and misbehavior like hazing and sexual violence. Um, and there have been fraternities that have decided to cut ties and go independent for years. But I think we're seeing sort of more frequently a handful of colleges, there are multiple fraternity chapters banding together and deciding to go out on their own. Some are calling them now rogue fraternities. Um, so at West Virginia University and at Duke University, these are two other places where similar things have happened. And so it is something that we're definitely seeing more of. Jim, as we mentioned, uh, your son, Tim, uh, died as a result of a hazing uh, incident at Penn State in 2017. And, and I'm wondering your thoughts on as these fraternities, this trend continues, which it, apparently it is, where they disassociate themselves from the universities and go off on their own rogue fraternities, as Sarah mentioned, if that's a, a, a super bad thing, because then whatever tenuous restrictions and guidance they may have had from the universities would now be totally absent, wouldn't it? Yeah, I I, I think it's a, a serious risk. And I, I have great concern about fraternities disaffiliating from, uh, from the university and parents should too. Um, you're going to lose access to insurance and and other things, and also there's no oversight, there's no guidance, and it, it only takes one or two, you know, people within that organization to ruin it for everybody and bring legal issues to everybody. So, disaffiliated fraternities are, are troubling for me. Do you think the schools lose what little apparently leverage they had left in, in some of these cases? Sure. I mean, they they <laughs> they no longer have oversight of them. I mean, you know the. The fraternities themselves will not be able to participate in school-run uh, events, but you know the university doesn't have any oversight over those organizations and what they do, and you know that in itself is is a problem. And and you know we've seen at University of Texas, I believe it was SAE, where they disaffiliated and they just totally got crazy and went very rogue. And um, there's been litigation between the university and and the fraternity. Um, the local fraternity chapter um, for, for years. Sarah, is there any legal recourse universities can take, or are they pretty much powerless to deal with students that want to, you know, form a basically a, a house where they do what they want that's off campus and not associated with the university they're attending? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, legally, students have the right to join any organization and associate with whoever they want, right? That's the First Amendment's protection of free association. Um, if you're the college, you know, your main option is kind of to say, hey, students, don't join these organizations. And that's what you've seen at USC. You saw this at West Virginia University as well, where you know the, the president sort of issued strongly worded statements saying, hey, incoming students and parents, please don't associate with these organizations. In fact, they sort of are actively discouraging 
it all over their websites. Um, and that's that's kind of your, your main option because ultimately students can affiliate with whatever group they want to affiliate with. What's the strongest, you know, argument for staying in for, for some of these fraternities? Uh, you know, Jim was saying that you can't participate in the, in the campus events. I imagine, you know, you can't use a school logo or what's, what's to, to keep a fraternity there if they want to leave? Right. I mean, you know, there are benefits to being able to use the university name and resources, especially in the recruitment of new members. Um, you know, again, can't use university facilities for certain things. Um, you know, and that those um, sort of longstanding ties, they, they mean more um, than you might sort of think offhand. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately what you've seen at USC, for example, is this sort of frustration, especially with this policy that's called deferred recruitment, which is basically where fraternities can't recruit new members until the students have been at the university for at least one semester. Some even make them wait until they're sophomores. And I think this, this in particular has been a policy that has been an issue at USC and at other institutions. And that's sort of why fraternities have decided to cut ties. Jim, what's your message to parents whose kids are now going off to colleges and are joining or thinking about joining uh, sororities and fraternities? Yeah, I would, I would do your research on the organizations that your kids are looking to join, understand what kind of violations they've had in the past. If they're disaffiliated, I strongly suggest that you have your, your kids avoid them because there, there's, there's problems lurking. There's a reason that those, those organizations can't follow the rules. And, and again, it could only be a few people in the organization, but one or two could bring everything down. Um, you know, just, just do your research and learn about it. And, uh, you know, go in with your eyes wide open and also tell, tell your kids if it doesn't look right or smell right and what's going on, then walk away. What do you um, think of that kind of waiting period that, that Sarah was talking about that's being uh, talked about at, at so many of these schools that, you know, maybe it's just too dangerous for a new freshman. Wait a little bit. Yeah, I'm a big believer in deferred recruitment. We got that instituted at Penn State. I, I think it's important. I know the national fraternities don't don't agree with that. They don't believe there's research that supports it. but you know, I think people need to get their feet under under them and and be able to develop a friend group before showing up on campus and automatically getting thrown into an organization that they really know no one yet. It's Jim Piazza there. His son, Tim, died of the results of uh, hazing at uh, Fraternity of Penn State in 2017. Jim, thank you. And Sarah Brown, reporter, Chronicle of Higher Education. More in-depth on the way. We'll have another half an hour and we'll get you traffic in just one minute. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Legal developments in the world of former President Trump, well, they come at a dizzying pace these days, so it's sometimes hard to keep track of who's being investigated and who's under indictment. But you can add Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of New York City and a longtime confidant of the former president, to the under-investigation category. He was among the most aggressive Trump allies, uh, pushing the idea that the 2020 election had been fraudulent and notified he's the target of a criminal investigation there out of Georgia. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, currently a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Barbara, thanks for being here. So different levels when someone might be looking at you. Target is never the level you want to be in. No, that's absolutely right. There's sort of three categories when a person is called to testify before a grand jury. The first and most innocuous is just witness. You know, you saw the car crash. What did you see? 
That's uh, that's a good one. That's the good one. Then there's a medium one where you're a subject, and that means maybe you're on the periphery. We want to hear what you have to say, but you know you're kind of within the scope of this investigation. And then target. Target is sometimes referred to as a putative defendant. That's someone where the evidence has now unfolded in such a way that you have been linked to criminal conduct. So it's a perilous place to be, and targets are usually notified of their status in case they want to invoke their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. And in your experience, do most targets become people who are indicted? You know, that really depends. It's hard to say most, but um, it's, uh, it's definitely a place of peril. It definitely means that there's a pretty high likelihood. Um, now, there are a lot of things he could do to help himself. He could testify and share information about others and work out a deal. That happens sometimes. So it's hard to say, but I, I will say that being a target is uh, some rare air and means the person is dangerously close to being charged. We were saying this is a dizzying pace, uh, especially lately. You want to take us back on a little history lesson and, and look at some of the things that they might be looking at him for specifically? Yeah, well, the reporting indicates that he has been uh, under their investigation for his role in Georgia. He made when he testified before Georgia's legislature. You know, he talked about voter fraud, suitcases full of ballots that were pulled out of the counting uh, locations and other kinds of things without, you know, any basis whatsoever. So it's his own activity. You know, his lawyer has said this is all about um, privileged communications with his client, Donald Trump. Maybe it includes some of that, but mostly it's about his own conduct. He was there testifying baselessly, really, about all kinds of fraud that uh, was later debunked. You mentioned that when somebody is a target, they're told often that they are so that they can make the decision whether to invoke their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Now, he's supposed to go, I think, tomorrow uh, before a grand jury. Is your bet that he'll do exactly that, take the Fifth? I think so. But, you know, you can't just take the Fifth blanketly. You have to assert it on a question-by-question basis. And so there may be questions that he can answer. I mean, certainly if they ask you, What's your name? You can't take the fifth on that. Only questions, the answers to which could expose you to criminal prosecution. It's also seen when a target testifies before a grand jury as that person's opportunity to kind of tell their side of the story. If there is some good defense here as a prosecutor, I'd want to know it. For the love of God, tell me. I don't want to go to court. I don't want to be in a trial situation. I don't want the Perry Mason moment when the doors burst open and there's an innocent explanation for all of this. If you've got a good story, tell me now. Um, so that's his opportunity. But he may uh, have some questions that he answers that are not protected by the Fifth Amendment privilege. So it's an important step to go through to check it off the list that you went down this path, and then you can move on and assess whatever decisions you need to make about charging. There was another piece uh, to this that happened uh, recently, too. Senator Lindsey Graham did not want to talk to the investigators. Uh, he's going to have to do that. Yeah, so he sought to quash a subpoena to testify arguing that um, his conversations were protected by the speech or debate clause of the Constitution, which protects members of Congress from being asked to answer questions about things they say on the Senate floor. This doesn't relate to legislation or things he said on the Senate floor. This relates to calls he made asking the Georgia uh, election authorities to see if they couldn't, uh, you know, do something to help the cause. So, those are the things they're looking at there. And uh, I think quite properly, the judge has said, uh, nope, you need to come in and testify. You know, Barbara, I was thinking uh, Hollywood may be the only place where you would take the fifth if asked for your name. 
<laughs> yeah, I suppose that's right. Um, you know, in this case, it's uh, it's not something to be taken lightly. Barbara McQuaid, a former U.S. Attorney, Eastern District of Michigan, and then now professor, University of Michigan Law. Coming up, two words you probably wouldn't associate with drought-stricken California, mega-flood. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. It is feast or famine. That's uh, the way around here when it comes to big storms. You either get a record drought that's rapidly drying up the reservoirs and the rivers, or you get the atmospheric river storms. Those are more common during our winters. Uh, imagine a storm that parks itself over here for days at a time, maybe a month, and uh, we can't handle it. Yeah, that's a very real possibility, according to a new research study coming out of UCLA. Even in this time of sustained drought, California is very vulnerable, it seems, to a kind of train of storms that could create a mega flood in the state with entire cities underwater, thousands dead, and billions of dollars worth of infrastructure washed away. Michael Anderson is a state climatologist at the California Department of Water Resources. Michael, thanks for being with us. Well, I mean, there's no way to, to, to sort of put a positive spin on all of this. It sounds absolutely disastrous, but apparently a real possibility? So, yeah, this is a a plausible catastrophic uh, flood scenario that UCLA has been investigating both from a historic perspective as well as um, what things might look like in the decades to come with climate change. And what we find are these patterns where it's not just a single atmospheric river, but just a repeated hammering of the state, uh, some ways kind of like we saw in 2017, but amplified even further, uh, where again, it eventually overwhelms our ability to uh, manage. I was just talking to Charles, when was the last time that something like this did occur? Because I mean, so Sacramento, downtown, you always take the stairs up to what is now the first floor. That's actually the old second floor of these houses, because when they had a huge flood, all the first floors were underwater. Right. So if we go back to uh, the 1862 flood, uh, this was a time period before we had, you know, the modern flood management infrastructure we have in place. But at that time, that inundated the entire Central Valley, uh, flooding Sacramento to the point that uh, then Governor Stanford had to attend his inauguration in a boat. And he then had to relocate the capital to San Francisco. So... Now, but of uh, course, but of course, in those days, as as you know, I mean, the population of the state was was a fraction of what it is now. So, if we had this sort of mega flood that would affect what the uh, L.A. area, the Orange County area, Central California, I mean, I, I read what was one description of an inland sea. Is that what we'd end up having? That is uh, the term that that is used. Uh, that because you see just this massive amount of water uh, that ends up exceeding the riverbanks, spreading out over the landscape and um, with the kind of ongoing precipitation continuing that inundation. Uh, yeah, we have a lot more people. We're getting upwards of 40 million people, uh, many of them located there in Southern California, enjoying the mostly wonderful weather. Yeah. Uh, until it's not. <laughs> until it's not. Take the uh, take the climate change aspect and explain that to people who are still maybe stuck on the idea of, okay, I don't understand this because it is so bone dry right now and we're in this mega drought. They say, how are we going to get a mega flood? Right. So uh, 
as we're seeing on the, the warming part of the atmosphere with the drying piece of it, uh, the temperatures get hotter, it gets really good at drying things out. On the flip side, a warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor. Now, in the wintertime, all that water vapor condensing into an atmospheric river and then being pushed against our mountains. And that's the key part of these scenarios is that all that water vapor is located in the bottom part of the atmosphere. And as it speeds along the ocean, comes in, hits the mountains and goes up, all the rain dumps. And that's where you see, um, if you've ever been driving during an atmospheric river and you're headed uphill, you can find those spots where the rain is just absolutely pouring down on you. And it's due to the effect of the mountains interacting with these storms. Uh, when you get an atmosphere that holds more water vapor, uh, you have more fuel to work with. As that moisture rises, the air can't hold it and more of it falls out. Now, the other part of climate change that the models are suggesting is then these storms don't move off as quickly. So that means the time that you're under the heavy rain gets longer, and the longer that duration lasts, the more flooding uh, can result. Michael, would, would we likely have any kind of significant uh, warning to this event? Or my understanding of the study uh, was that this could happen anytime in, in a 40-year period, but it could happen just as easily, I don't know, next year as it could 39 years from now, right? So we have been putting a lot of work into better understanding atmospheric rivers and their characteristics and including their prediction. And we uh, have now uh, satellites uh, that give us a view of water vapor over the earth. And in 1998, that was the first time we had that imagery. And that's where uh, the name atmospheric rivers came from because they saw that water vapor was really concentrated in these narrow bands. And so now with 20 years of study under them, we're getting a lot better at understanding those characteristics. And we're getting a lot better at being able to model the precipitation that comes out of them. A lot of this work coming from UC San Diego's uh, Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes there at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Is there anything we can do about this other than try and brace ourselves? <laughs> yeah, there is a lot we can do. As we continue to work with the state in terms of planning, forecast, and warning, and making investments to improve our flood control system, uh, partnering with our local and regional agencies in those efforts, we can also work with our emergency preparedness folks and understanding the importance of paying attention to those weather forecasts, paying attention to the watches and warnings that are put out by the National Weather Service, and working with our responders in terms of that ready, set, go mentality for evacuations. Michael Anderson, state's climatologist, California Department of Water Resources. It's a good time to take swimming lessons. It's a good thing I live in a high-rise. Right? <laughs> Stay up there. Don't yeah, but, down. How, but how high? <laughs> <laughs> That's the issue. Call the leasing office. I need to get to a higher floor. Um, more in-depth tomorrow, 1 p.m.